The Energy Gang is brought to you by PG&E. Out in California, 20% of EV drivers in the U.S. are in PG&E service territory. Pretty crazy, right? Well, the electric revolution is happening, but it's not going to happen with single drivers alone. So PG&E is helping to electrify corporate fleet vehicles. If you need help with the infrastructure and the investment, get in touch with PG&E's EV specialists. Find out more at pge.com gtm. Support for the Energy Gang also comes from Wonder Capital. We've been telling you that Wonder can finance your commercial or community solar projects, and you now know they can do it really quickly at lightning speeds. But did you know they now have lower rates and they can finance all kinds of projects? If you've got a project with unique attributes and you need some help, go to wondercapital.com gtm today to experience the Wonder difference. From Green Tech Media, this is the Energy Gang, weekly debates and discussions on the fast-changing world of energy. I'm Stephen Lacey, a contributing editor at GTM. Welcome to the show. It took 40 years for America to install a million solar systems, and it took just three years to install the second million. From here on out, we're probably going to be installing about a million systems every couple of years. To mark this new era of scale, we're going to look back at the most important trends that got us to the first million and what will be the most important to keeping many more millions coming. Then Tesla has a new way to package and sell solar online. Is it going to work? Finally, what's the best way to frame climate change and the energy transition? What's effective in journalism and in politics? How do you influence skeptics? And what do we need to change? I've got two rhetoricians two influencers by my side who spin up language every week to try to convince us of their point of view. Out in San Francisco is Katherine Hamilton. She is the chair of 38 North Solutions. Hey there, what you doing out in San Francisco? Yeah, I was invited to be part of the Elemental Accelerators um, big program out here, their global partners meeting, and then their big interactive show, which is amazing with a ton of startups. So you're acting as a judge? No, I was not a judge. I facilitated a panel, but I'm also working with a lot of their companies. They ran a policy prize, and the prize was that I got to work with a couple of their companies and try to help them out on some gnarly policy issues. You were the prize. That's so cool. It was the, <laughs> it was the prize. It was fun. It's really fun. Well, our other prize is on the line from Bethesda, Maryland. We prize him so much. Jigger Shaw is the president of Generate Capital. Hello, sir. How are you? Hello. I am so flattered to be called a prize. <laughs> <laughs> well, the latest numbers from our researchers at Wood Mackenzie are out on solar, and America has officially installed 2 million solar systems. We're probably going to double that number in four years. And the number itself is attention-grabbing, but it doesn't provide a lot of context. So it got us thinking... What are the most influential developments that got us to this point, and what's going to enable a doubling of installs in such a short period of time? So we're going to give our picks, but first, I actually want to ask you, Jigger, what does this solar milestone mean? Well, you know, I entered the solar industry in 1995 with AstroPower, and it was around 1997 that President Clinton announced the Million Solar Roofs Challenge. So that's the date that I like to use as the start of this challenge. So from that perspective, I think we did it in less than 20 years for the first phase. Oh, wow. So it's not 40 years to you then. It's 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 from the 90s on. Yeah, I think that... Um, but 
regardless, I think when you think about all of the steps that it took to get here, I mean, it's just really impressive, right? From 1997, we passed net metering in you know almost all of the states throughout the country. We got you know incentive programs in place in California and then other states, you know, Nyserta and New York, and then New Jersey. And I think when you think about you know where we are today, we're talking about over 200,000 full-time employees and, you know, folks who have uh, continuing education programs and training programs. Some folks have been installing solar on residential rooftops for the better part of 20 years. So in addition to this being million solar roofs, this shows to me the importance of having goals. Clinton set forward a goal. We're going to have a million solar roofs by 2010. And granted, it took a couple of years longer than that, but they had a goal of the number of solar roofs. But not only that, they wanted to reduce greenhouse gas emissions and they wanted to increase jobs. They said, there may be as many as 70,000 jobs in the industry. And you know, we blew past that and we blew past the greenhouse gas numbers. But to me, this shows the importance of actually setting a goal. So I want to break up this conversation into three different parts. Number one will be our choices for a particularly important solar trend from the first 40 years of solar history, or according to Jigger, from the 90s onward. Um, Second will be a pick for the most important solar development between 2016 and 2019, when this second million came. And then what we think will be the defining trend, or maybe trends, between now and 2023, when we double that number. Catherine, over to you first. What do you think is the most important thing that guided the first million solar systems in the United States. What stands out to you? The thing that stands out to me is the investment tax credit. It was enacted in 2006, and it really spurred the industry forward. And what it did was it gave investors uh, some sense of security that this was that this was something that was worth investing in and brought down the cost. And I think that being stable over time has been critical for the industry. When you watch how the wind industry has waxed and waned based on the production tax credit, that's been really unhealthy. But the ITC has been incredible for solar, and that continues to be the case. And you know, even though it is starting to go down a little bit, um, and it will eventually phase out unless we somehow change that, um, this is this I think was the big the biggest deal for solar. So Catherine took the big one, I think one that a lot of people would choose. Jigger, what do you think about the tax credit thing? How how important is that amidst all the, the other forces? So I remember when the tax credit passed, and it was in the you know 2005 Energy Policy Act, and I remember we were the first ones to actually file for it with Goldman Sachs using the tax credit. So um, I rem- it was for a store on Staples' warehouse in Rialto, California. Um, so, look, I totally agree with her. I think for me, it's always been about the um, the technology progress. And so, when you think about where I was in 1995 with Astro Power, and then 1999 with BP Solar, um, you know, I just remember in 2015 um, we won or we purchased the um, New York City solar contract, and. And the best solar modules you could get back then that were lower cost from China was like 350 watts. Today, that same solar panel is 390 watts. So just in like four years, we improved from 350 watts to 390 watts. And I just think that like 
that that everyone thinks that we're going asymptotic and that solar can't get any more efficient. And here's a bunch of reasons why that won't happen. But we always find a way to get not just incrementally better, but substantially better every five years. Wow, you so slickly guided into your choice for the most important solar trend. So you're picking technology. Uh, that is that is your choice, right? Yeah, I think that's right. I think that like the technology improvements is my choice because obviously financing is the obvious answer. I can't go with that. <laughs> <laughs> well, then remind people what the most important developments in solar tech were. Was it you know better? sawing techniques for wafers? Was it better back contact materials? Was it better equipment to assemble modules? Was it all of the above? Like, what were the forces making those solar panels cheaper and more efficient at the same time? So in 1995, AstroPower was using old test wafers from the semiconductor industry. And my job was to figure out what chemical formulation uh, could most easily strip um, the coatings so we could go back to the raw silicon. And those wafers were, you know, 800, 900 microns thick, right? And, you know, when you when you went forward to 1999, I started BP Solar, Joe Hudgens was the head of manufacturing. And I remember the like plan he put forward, there were like 12 things on that list. And so it was things like the way in which the back contacts were applied uh, with how much force for instance, because if you put too much force on there, then the thinner wafers would crack. You also had the front contact grid, and they figured out that like if you painted it one way versus the other way, you could get more electron capture. You had all sorts of little micro changes that were like 1% better here, 2% better here, 4% better there. And they all added up to actually get to where we are today. That's the amazing thing about solar is that it isn't one breakthrough that got us here. It was, you know, 50 breakthroughs that got us here. And all of them had a 1%, 2 4% influence. I like both of these choices, and they're different than mine. I chose the oil industry. Big oil was a really important player in you know the first 40 years of solar. Now, I know this doesn't match up perfectly well with the time frame that you outlined, but certainly in the early days of solar, it was Shell, Mobile, Atlantic Richfield, BP. They were putting the first bets on solar and help push more sophisticated R&D. They helped spur the first utility scale projects. They offered the first commercial applications for remote oil fields and um, equipment to pump water. And when it was really hard to sell these systems, the oil industry offered the kind of the first tertiary applications and then started putting money into early R&D. So I'd say if we're looking back at four decades, big oil is to me one of the most important catalysts. Yeah. I mean, I, I agree with you that the big oil played a big role. I don't know how much of a catalyst it was, but I think, I mean, SolarX um, was 50% owned by Amico and then 50% owned by um, Enron, actually. And then, um, and they were probably the most important solar company in the last 40 years, just because they really invented polysilicon um, for solar. But no, I totally like hear you. The oil industry had a huge role to play. I just don't know whether it was pivotal. Well, after a couple of decades of doing nothing and spinning off their investments, 
many of them are finally getting back into it on the downstream deployment side, that is. Okay, our picks for the most important trend between 2016 and 20, at the end of 2018, let's say. Uh, Jigger, what is your choice? So I, I already obviously revealed it in the last segment where I think it's higher technology again. But I think that where I think people are going to be uh, surprised is how much extra production we're going to be able to get out of these systems through non-solar panel technologies. So for instance, tracking was not really standard until around 2016, 2017. You know, bifacial panels are only becoming bankable this year, maybe next year. Um you know, putting on storage, particularly DC coupled storage to provide more efficiency gains to the solar. So a lot of the lost power um, from clipping when inverters, you know, are over saturated with power as well as like morning and evenings, uh, solar is being captured now. I think when you think about the solar pulse technology that's being led by folks like Solarlytics, um, you know, I'm pretty impressed by all the different things I see. And a lot of these things actually will, each one of these things should reduce the levelized cost of energy of solar by 5%, each one of them. So was there something different about tech improvements on the power electronics side, on the tracker side within the last few years that was above and beyond what we saw before that? Yeah. So like, for instance, um, it used to be that solar trackers basically just were sort of dumb east-west trackers. Today, with artificial intelligence and machine learning, they're actually tracking each row individually. Um, they also have robots now that actually will clean the panels automatically. So you don't clean them once every three months like people do now. But like in places like India, they, they clean them every week because the dust actually builds up that quickly. And that alone is adding 8% to the production. Um, so it's 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 just amazing to me how these sort of seemingly small um, inventions are you know producing dramatically higher production. Catherine, what happened between 2016 and the end of 2018 that was most influential in that second million solar installations? So in the U.S., I'm astounded that we were able to get to the second million considering we had two trade cases going on, and we've had to fight those tooth and nail. And I think that's in part because of the tax credits, but also because of all the state action on renewable portfolio standards. So this has given the industry continued certainty in spite of the fact that we've been having to fight against the costs going up every single day. Well, it's true that like we had all those net metering fights and, you know, we largely came out unscathed in a lot of those things. And that, I mean, had those gone a different way, it wouldn't, have, it would have been very hard to get to the second million. Yeah. Net metering has been huge. Well, no matter what, it always shakes out so that one of us takes policy, one of us takes tech and one of us takes finance. So my, my choice is Wall Street. Obviously, investment banks were big in renewables from you know the late 90s or mid 2000s onward but in the last few years you know as solar leases and loans have become ubiquitous um, this backing by a range of even bigger investment banks helped drive the volume of installations to get us to that second million a lot faster and now we see solar loans that are more sophisticated they're going to look more like consumer loans that we know in other areas with more banks offering direct-to-consumer products. And 
the love of renewables on Wall Street contributed in a major way to the scale we saw over the last few years. Just to back you up on that, I talked to Nate Gabig over at Deloitte, and he told me that they've done five securitizations this year already on you know solar uh, residential solar securitizations. Yeah, I totally agree, Stephen. Like these institutional investors, pension funds, um, a lot of different types of investors coming in. So this may be a question without like a real answer, but I'm going to ask you to choose one of these things. So if either you of you had to choose, like between the the impact of Wall Street, the impact of incremental tech, or the impact of policies put in place, what would you choose as like the most influential? I will always choose policy. <laughs> of course you will. Sorry, can't get away from it. We're all dug in on our answers. <laughs> Which one of your children do you love the most? Um, they know who they are. <laughs> I, look, I mean, I'm obviously going to always choose business model innovation and finance, um, just because I think that there's a lot of examples out there where the tech has improved, but has never been deployed at scale. And I do think that Business model innovation and finance, which go hand in hand, uh, you know, is what unlocks technology. Okay. So the unlocking of the next 2 million systems, how are we going to double the number of systems that we have in the U.S. between now and 2023? Catherine, what do you think is going to be the defining trend or trends between now and 2023? So I think where we need to go is we need to make it the next decade of diversity and equity. I think that's what we need to focus on. I think to do that, we're going to have to bring down costs even more. And I'm going to take the technical approach right now and say that we have to hack interconnection and make sure that we can interconnect quickly um, without having to wait you know, and I think they're going to be there's some technologies even right now and some policies right now that are being developed to do that. But I think that's the next thing we have to do. Wait, so help me unpack that a little bit more because you put a bunch of things together there. So you said diversity and equity, interconnection and bringing down costs. Obviously, better interconnection brings down costs. How does that improve diversity and equity and why is diversity and equity important to this? Well, diversity and equity are important because there are a vast majority of people in the U.S. that can't even get solar because of their FICO scores. So getting to uh, reduce those interconnection costs is going to give access to a lot more people. Yeah, I definitely agree with you, Catherine. I mean, we're we're certainly looking at a lot of non-FICO-based financing techniques and other things. I mean, and this has been proven in other sectors like the auto industry and other places. And so best practices are available and they just haven't been applied to the solar industry yet. Jigger, what about you? So for me, like, so I think solar has become mainstream. And when you look at the data around our growth curve, I think we've largely flattened out. So there's not a lot of growth in systems. It seems like we're doing about 500,000 systems every year, which is why we're doing another million every two years. So I think that the next big trend is going to be solar plus X. So I think people are going to start um, using solar as a way to do broader packages. So solar plus storage or solar plus resiliency or solar plus EV charging or solar plus, you know, net a zero. A bag of peanuts. Yeah, a bag of peanuts or, you know, net zero energy homes, right? That are led with the solar contractors. And so I think you're going to find that that solar will be defined by the packages that solar anchors, which includes like electric vehicles, for instance. Like I think a lot of people, 
you know, would be fine saying, well, let's just do one big financing package for my electric vehicle and my solar system. I want solar with a Netflix subscription. <laughs> or Solar via T-Mobile. <laughs> <laughs> you know, both of you hit on something really important, and I think we're all kind of saying the same thing, but just taking a slightly different approach. I have a little bit of a broader take, and I was just going to say the customer, right? Customer acquisition is going to determine how quickly residential in particular can grow. Obviously, residential makes up the majority of the volume and systems deployed in this country. And customer acquisition now makes up 23% of a residential system's price. So figuring out who the next customers are, how are they not you know, middle class, largely white people. Uh, that equity piece and diversity piece, Catherine, that you outlined is really important. Um, and and how, finding less expensive sales channels will be really key and figuring out how to bundle other technologies so you can reach consumers who may have different wants and needs will be really crucial. So I agree with both of you, and I'll just take that and broaden it and say, I think it's really all about customer acquisition and the different tools at play to drive those really still high costs down and find a new, a completely new set of customers. I see your all of the above comment and give you middle of the road. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Let's see. What else could work for Solar Plus? Well, uh, like geothermal. Demand response. Yeah, demand response, but also like heat pumps and geothermal, right? Like I think, you know, getting folks, you know, off of natural gas, for instance, that a lot of folks are working on, right? I think there's just a tremendous amount of technology that in and of itself, I don't know that it's as sexy going to people saying, I want to just, you know, figure out a way to get you an air source heat pump or a geothermal heat pump. But when you say to someone, you know, I'm going to sell you solar, but also figure out a way to, you know, give you energy efficiency for the rest of your home and give you an all home solution. I think that actually is probably the way things are going. I know a company that's trying to do just that. Uh, Tesla's trying to reinvent customer acquisition to drop solar prices and package solar and batteries online to make it easier for the customer. Is this new and interesting? Are they going to solve these challenges? First, a quick word about our sponsors. Now is the time to begin electrifying your fleet. And if you're in PG&E service territory there in Northern California, you've got a whole range of options. They have financial, logistical, and construction support for you. They've got limited time incentives as part of a new EV fleet program. So if you've got school buses, transit buses, delivery vehicles, or other fleet vehicles, and you want to get them electrified fast and efficiently, then you should reach out to PG&E. Get in touch with one of PG&E's EV specialists to learn more at pge.com gtm. And if you're looking to pair that EV charging with some solar Wonder Capital, our other sponsor, can help. They're financing projects in Hawaii with a storage component. They're doing the same in Massachusetts through smart projects. They're financing systems in California through community choice aggregators. Let's be honest, there isn't such a thing as a vanilla commercial scale solar project. So you can head on over to wondercapital.com GTM to work with folks who will understand your unique project for what it is financeable. Is 2019 the year of Tesla solar? After letting the solar business atrophy for a few years, Elon says he's putting a renewed focus on the solar roof, a new sales strategy, and the power wall. 
Tesla hinted some months back that it would shift to online sales only, and now we have a better picture of what that looks like. Customers can now put $99 down to buy a standard, scalable, 4-kilowatt solar package with a loan. And rather than have someone come on site for an initial inspection, customers are going to upload photos of their electrical equipment. They're going to potentially do the same thing for the solar roof, except it's $1,000 down. And we have no idea when the solar roof is actually coming at scale. Now, this approach offers between a 5 and 16% price reduction compared to residential averages tallied by our folks at Wood Mackenzie and the folks over at Energy Sage. But there's a catch. No one has really figured out online sales yet. It doesn't even appear to be a substantial hurdle in customer adoption. Um, it, it's unclear whether this actually solves some of the customer adoption challenges. So over to the gang for thoughts. Jigger, what's Tesla trying to do here? I think it's trying to manage the solar business uh, without, you know, sort of investing in it. Right? I'm not, you know, when you think about it, like two years ago or two and a half years ago, Solar City was at 250 megawatts a quarter. This last quarter, they were at 47 megawatts of deployment, right? So this is a managed decline, right? Like you can't really call it anything else. And all of the announcements that they've made around this are things that people have been doing for years, right? Posigen's entire business model is around a four kilowatt solar system that, you know, basically is easily removable and is sort of attached in certain ways and, you know, and, and it's standardized for everybody. So there's no customization um, and that's worked pretty well, and it's been backed by Goldman Sachs and a few other folks, right? I think same thing's true with um, you know PV Sketch and some of those technologies, which has allowed people to really just upload photos and use Google satellites to do most of the engineering work to prevent going on site. I mean, there's there's even lots of companies that do drones now to collect a lot of that data. So I I don't think that anything that they're offering here is new. I think it's just that Tesla in general just doesn't like to spend money on marketing, right? And SolarCity's entire thing was overspending on marketing. And so, you know, Tesla likes to do these big splashes. They hopefully drive traffic to the website and get more sales, but they're not actually looking to spend the kind of money SolarCity did in customer acquisition. SolarCity loved to spend money. It's door-to-door sales had an average customer acquisition cost of $4,500, Per sale. And it had a store partnership with Home Depot, and its customer acquisition cost there was $7,000. So, at a time when Tesla really needs to focus on making cars cheaper, more efficiently, and get them out the door, it makes sense that they're going to roll back this very expensive part of the business. But they're now filling it in with something that, as you described, Jigger, doesn't feel like something completely new. And I wonder. If putting the onus on the customer to take a picture of their meter, take a picture of their roof, you know, send them details about their house, does that cause friction in the process at all? I mean, this is like a step or two removed from what other companies have already implemented. Well, it's more about the fact that it it starts to dehumanize the sales force. I mean, I've been I have been getting calls from a lot of the Tesla solar folks who've stayed on with the company. And they've said to me, look, Jigger, I've got, you know, hundreds of satisfied customers who are giving me referrals. I'm not allowed to call the referrals directly. I have to send them back into the system 
and make sure that they get processed electronically, where I used to just, you know, as soon as I got the referral, drive over to their house and close the sale. Like that's just not allowed in the new Tesla. And I just think that, you know, the personalization um, of this has, you know, been sort of taken away because Silicon Valley likes to commoditize people. And I don't think that that's how this is going to work in the solar industry. I think, you know, this is about a a face-to-face sale, not a, you know, web click. Yeah. So I feel like it's that first touch that you then are able to be more efficient about. So I've done a bunch of home renovations recently, including in, you know, a new roof. We're doing our basement right now. And we did a lot of that first initial work by going on Angie's List or Home Advisor and, you know, finding out, finding a few that had really good reputations and really good ratings and then interviewing them. So it's like that second process that that's when you start developing the comfort. But I feel like the first piece of it, of just like narrowing down your choices, that that can be very automated. Yeah, I think I I hear what you're saying. And I totally agree with the trend there. I just think that when you look at the, you know, success of and profitability of, you know, these sort of local type companies in roofing and plumbing and electrical, et cetera, there's never really been a huge success story on the residential front that's nationwide. The vast majority of these companies are local. Um, And so I don't have a problem with the back office being automated on the edges. And I don't have a problem with the first touch being that way either. But I do think that the notion that like, that this is something that gets done um, through a nationwide supplier is is the thing that I feel is is tougher to get my arms around. The way that Sunrun I think has protected themselves from that is while they own REC, they they still like support a lot of other contractors. So they're really the yeah financial. they have a lot of local local installers that they work with. Yeah, so they're like the financial plumbing for a lot of those folks. Um, and those folks are actually the you know face to the customer. So I don't know. We'll see how this plays out. But I don't think Tesla is actually betting big on growing their solar division. Well, let's move on to our last topic, which is kind of a meta discussion of what we do here every week. Talk about the clean energy transition and climate change. In the last week, though, the New York Times and the Columbia Journalism Review wrote in-depth pieces on how reporters are trying to cover climate change differently you know, drowning polar bears and scenarios in 2100 just aren't cutting it. It's all about the acute impacts of people today and outside of the areas that we traditionally think of when we talk about climate change. We're also entering an election and Democratic candidates are talking about the issue a lot. So it got us thinking, what's our preferred way to talk about it? What does our experience and the research tell us about the best way to make people more receptive? Catherine, over to the energy piece your job is basically to convince politicians, mostly Republicans, that this clean energy transition is the real deal. How do you frame it with a skeptic or someone who isn't paying attention? This is such a gnarly issue because so much of the Republican Party, as led by the president, just is refusing to believe something that the entire rest of the world is trying to solve. So it's it's kind of hard when you're in that context to figure out like what's the middle ground. There's no middle ground when one whole faction doesn't believe that it exists. But I do find that talking about 
facing it and saying, there is an issue, here's some solutions. And it's about American innovation because we are the innovators. And if we can continue with innovation and we can spur, continue to spur that and make sure that this is looking toward the energy system of the future. So not to dump on the energy system of the past, because we're really, you know, we're, we are existing on the shoulders of those older industries, but let's take everybody into the future. We have the solutions and we have the innovation to do that. And that's what we need to invest in. So that's how I talk to people about it. Um, you know, there, you have to figure out what language they speak and then try to adjust based on that. Well, let, let me let me channel someone sitting, a politician sitting down in their office. Well, thank you co- for coming in, uh, Catherine. We really appreciate it. We agree, agree. Innovation is really important. That's why we believe in putting uh, hundreds of millions of dollars behind clean coal. That's why we believe that uh, it's advanced nuclear and uh, carbon capture and storage. So that's what we, we believe we should be putting our money as, as uh, believers in innovation. So, uh, Mr. Congressman, I would, I would say it's great if you want to continue to invest in research and development in those technologies. That is a good thing. But do you recall that you had a massive hurricane in your state last year and all of the generators at Walmart sold out? Wouldn't it be great to be able to also right now be able to have some resilient solutions to those issues that continue to plague your state so that you will be able to offer those today rather than in 20 years? Well, I heard that there's this guy, Jigger Shaw, selling those systems, and I don't know if I trust him. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's hear from him. I, would, I, would, I wouldn't trust me either. Um, but I'd like to reframe this a little bit. I, look, I think that for me, the, the frustrating part about climate is that journalists in general continue to practice sort of false equivalents, and so they allow both sides to get their talking points into their pieces. And I think the second piece of it for me is that is that they, I think, have a hard time making clear uh, connections with climate change on all the issues that they're they're covering, even though those um, you know sort of facts are not really in dispute, right? When you think about you know the famous one, which is like the drought in Syria, which caused a lot of the unrest, which led to the civil war, or when you think about the fact that you know Chinese meat um, intake increases is actually leading to the destruction of the Amazon. Like there's a lot of conversations around, oh, the Amazon's getting destroyed, but not to the sort of like climate aspects of it and consumption aspects of it and all those pieces that are intertwined. You know, even the wildfires and others, like we talk about it, but then we don't talk about the fact that like, that the the cost of climate um, disasters this year is about $170 billion, right? And it would have been way, way cheaper just to like implement the Green New Deal, right? And so I just feel like the reporting on these issues is so disjointed because reporters are afraid of just saying climate change in every piece. Okay, we're jumping around a little bit here. Let me see if I can wrangle this in. So there's two elements to this conversation. One is how do you talk about the solutions and one is how do you talk about climate change? So let's just riff on what you said there, Jigger, and that is how do we think and talk about climate change in a way that gets more people understanding the problem? And I was looking through the way that the Yale Center on Climate Communication breaks this up, and they wrote a piece in or a really nice report in 2008 that they continually 
update on the different types of people who think about climate change. Now, 7 in 10 Americans, according to their polling, now say climate change is happening and it's a problem. But when you divide up the types of people who are watching or not watching the issue, it becomes more complicated. 12% fall into the alarmed camp. So you don't really need to convince those people. 29% fall into the concerned camp. And those are the folks you really need to reach. 26% fall into the cautious camp. So that brings you to just through the concerned camp and the the cautious camp to 55% of those surveyed. So if you can reach those two groups, concerned and cautious, you can have a huge potential impact on swaying public discourse. And the question is, how do you reach them? And I, I do agree mostly with your comments, Jigger. I would go even more local, though. I mean, particularly, let's just talk about here in the U.S., I'm convinced that immediate economics are the most important way to talk about this stuff. So your insurance costs are going up. It's going to be impossible for you to rebuild your house. Your fishing spot is less productive. Your farmland is becoming less valuable. You obviously don't want to scare people. That is, the research also shows that if your message is too negative, then you can turn people off. And that's true for almost everybody. So you've got to be a little bit cautious. But I think when you talk about this as a politician or you write about this in the press, really focusing on those local economic impacts is a way to get people engaged with the issue. And I do see that changing. I actually see more papers and more people understanding that and drawing these local impacts into the conversation more. Yeah, here's the thing. I know you cited that study and I think I, I, I'm very cautious. <laughs> I'm one of those cautious people about taking those at face value because a lot of people are not going to admit that they're worried about something because they don't know what to do about it. I think there are a lot of channels that we can use to educate people and to deliver messages in different ways. For example, Catherine Hayhoe, a, a climate scientist, is really good at delivering a message for evangelicals. I mean, she's good at delivering any messages, but she takes that approach because she's an evangelical Christian. There are other people like Sir David Attenborough, who has this whole living, you know, the Living Planet series that my kids grew up on, now this Our Planet series, and he has this new show, Climate Change, The Facts. He is a trusted source for lots and lots of people, young people who are now today, you know, in corporate positions and have grown up listening to David Attenborough. And then there are folks like John Oliver, who had the great show on really distilling with Bill Nye on what carbon pricing was. And it's finding the right messengers to deliver things in a very simple, understandable way that kind of demystifies it. And also highlights that this is an existential crisis, but also says, but we have solutions and this is what we need to do. And I think then you're you're able to channel people into real action. Okay, so we've covered a lot of ground here. I want to loop this back around to the initial question, which was about the solutions. And I asked Catherine how she talks about like clean tech to make people who are skeptical more receptive. So Jigger, you obviously wrote a book a few years back called Creating Climate Wealth. Your mantra has been, this is the wealth, greatest wealth creation opportunity on the planet. How do you use that? Have you updated that recently? And how do you use that against people who may be skeptical, challenging, uncertain, cautious, whatever? 
So I think on that front, we've largely won. I haven't had to update it. I got a call from a major European utility this week, and they said, hey, Jigger, can you help us? And I was like, with what? And they said, you know, our competitors are out buying more companies than us. We'd like help to figure out which companies to buy. And I was like, well, why would you want to buy them? Well, because we need to. We're falling behind on you know, this wealth creation opportunity. And I was like, well, what's your framing? Like, do you care more about electric vehicles or being prosumer or whatever? Like, no, no, we just need to buy more companies, right? The latest CEO just got fired because they didn't buy enough companies. We need to buy more companies, right? So we're now in a place where I think whether it's BMW and Audi on the car side or whether it's, you know, big European utilities on the clean energy side, they recognize that they are being left behind, and that they need to work hard to catch up. I mean, even on stage, you know, there was a big announcement. I think Catherine had talked about this, about, you know, how Daimler's CEO said that the future is electric on trucks, which would have never came out of their mouth last year. And so, you know, I think that we are there now. I think everyone gets the fact from, you know, heads of state to heads of large corporations believe that climate change and the solutions that it, that are represented by it are the largest wealth creation opportunities of our lifetime. I agree that a lot of people have come around on that messaging, but I want to wrap up with a, just a quick couple of comments on how political candidates now in this election cycle are talking about it. And you do have more candidates talking about the solutions, but I feel like they're getting caught in a trap. They talk about spending on climate action as if they have to defend it or if they, they talk about it as if it were a moonshot. And all they need to do is point to the hundreds of billions of dollars being invested in renewables like right now by the world's biggest companies. Point to how grid operators and utilities are saying uh, that they can accommodate a lot of renewables and that they're investing a ton in renewables and not investing in new coal plants. There are hundreds of thousands of jobs that exist right now in the industry. And I don't think that the people I've I've seen talk about this issue on the stump are making that as real as they could. You know, they should just be like, don't we want more of that? This is where business is headed. Why why if you're not supporting that, you're anti-business. And just like use the same tactics that Republicans, the American Petroleum Institute, the Chamber of Commerce have used for years. You can make people look insane or out of touch if they aren't fully on board with what's happening. And I don't see that. I don't see them harnessing that wealth creation opportunity messaging in a way that's real and ties it to what's happening today. Right. But that's not where we are in the cycle, right? I think that is what Joe Biden basically did. He was like, I'm going to do more good stuff, right? In natural gas and all the other places where we've had a lot of progress. I think where we are with the Green New Deal is people are recognizing that the government has a role of being more intentional, right? In the same way that Catherine talked about earlier, how Bill Clinton really set this goal and it helped us focus our mind and get to the first million solar roofs installed. The same thing is true here, right? When, you know, I'm not backing any one candidate, but when Inslee says, we need to be at a you know hundred percent of all new cars sold being electric and all and a hundred percent of new buildings built being net zero energy. That's real government leadership, and I think that the technology we all agree is already there to accomplish that goal. But I don't know that if we leave it to business and just proving to people on a spreadsheet that this is better than what you were going to do, that everyone would make the right decision. Which is why government has to step in when the technology is proven and say. 
okay, now we're going to force you to use it. Well, it's time for the free electron, folks. And judging by the response on Twitter, people still like that name. So we are keeping it free electron. Jigger, um, what do you think? Are you okay with that decision? <laughs> I do not believe electrons are free. And we will have to meter our solar power. But We're not talking about economics. We're talking about physics. <laughs> <laughs> What's yours, Jigger? So I just wanted to log roll a little bit. Uh, we attended the Microgrid Knowledge Conference this week, and our partner, Scale Microgrid Solutions, just came out with a uh, pretty interesting solution for the brownouts that are going to be experienced in California. I don't know that people really understood the full gravity of what the state of California is proposing. I mean, they're saying that there might be you know 10 brownouts that are lasting two to five days um, at a time during this wildfire season. I mean, the economic calamity that that's going to cause for these folks is pretty high. And, you know, I think solving that problem with backup diesel generators is not, I think, acceptable to the, you know, air pollution standards and other standards that California has. And so I think, you know, the microgrid conference and then the folks who attended, I think, are really, um, you know, keen on figuring out how to solve this problem. And, you know, our partners have one, but I think a lot of other folks have solutions to that problem too. So I think you're going to see this as the next frontier around resiliency. Yeah, I totally agree because I'm working with those guys too. And I'm spending a lot of time while I'm out here talking to people about that very issue because it's not even just economic, Jigger. This is a, this could be really devastating from, you know, met for the medical perspective to have all these outages. Yeah, I wonder if this wildfire situation is another Aliso Canyon moment where it influenced a lot of added storage deployment. Are we going to say this, see the same thing with new types of microgrids? Because ultimately, that's what this industry does best. It responds to crisis well, and you can get these projects done pretty fast. Well, I I agree. I mean, this is something like that. I you know I hope that we don't have to have. Like you know, Irma hitting uh, hitting Puerto Rico and Harvey hitting uh, Houston and all these things occurring before people actually start responding to climate change. But uh, but yeah, no, I definitely agree that the interest level in microgrids is way 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 up now because of you know the wildfire disasters. Catherine, what is your free electron? Oh wait, no, you're you're almost free. You're not quite free electron. This is free, totally. Um, I have a pod, I have a podcast I'd like to recommend. It just dropped this week. It's called the Squeaky Clean Energy Podcast. So this is through the North Carolina Sustainable Energy Association. Ben Stockdale hosts and produces it. And what they do is that although it is very North Carolina centric, they go through, you know, what are the bills that have passed in North Carolina? It also is really good at explaining Things that are happening right now in a lot of states, especially in the South, but they, this last episode I listened to, talked about securitization, it talked about multi-year rate cases, and those are things that are happening in a lot of other places. So from a state perspective, yes, it dives into North Carolina policy, but I think it's also very transferable. So um, it's way more in the weeds than we are, but the Squeaky Clean Energy podcast is worth a listen. Well, my free electron has to do with Amazon. We had a conversation recently about Amazon's courtship of the fossil fuel industry and its lagging renewable energy procurement. And uh, Jeff Bezos made a pitch for a move 
to um, counter the environmental problems that we're facing on this planet. But it turns out he doesn't really want to do much about what's happening here. He just wants to move to a new colony in space. Bezos was unveiling his long-term plan for Blue Origin, a uh, space travel company he founded in the early 2000s. And he is part of this plan. He he outlined these colonies that were modeled after these famous um, ideas proposed in the 70s by a guy named Gerard O'Neill. And this presentation got a ton of blowback because Bezos seemed resigned to the fact that Earth would just at some point in the not so distant future be uninhabitable. And his belief is that we have one option, which is space. The the criticism was swift and brutal. I mean, why would a billionaire like Bezos not turn his attention to actually solving current problems and instead spend all his energy on convincing us that we need spinning space colonies? The the irony and the hubris was astounding. Now, Jigger, I know you get frustrated by Bill Gates for his approach to to clean energy investing, but at least he's actually putting real money behind trying to solve the world's problems. I mean, Bezos is on another planet, literally. Oh, no, I... I write. I wrote a piece on this on LinkedIn, and it got a lot of you know attention and views. I mean, Bezos has. Oh, what not, was your take? He has not figured out like what to do on the f- philanthropy side. Like literally nothing. Like whether it's um, figuring out what to give. Like it's only after he gets a ton of blowback then he gets gives five million bucks to homelessness issues or or something else. But he like he doesn't have any take. Like what's his thing? Like I want to help kids go to college. I want to do this. Like. He has not actually flexed any philanthropic muscles. And then even as a company, when you think about Amazon, you know, they're pretty far behind a lot of the rest of the tech companies around using renewable energy. Um, and, you know, like this things like, for instance, like, you know, allowing people to use the boxes that you get to ship like, you know, garage sale items to other people that might be able to use them. You have to pay a fee to do that. You can't just do it for free. Like, I don't know what their philanthropic mission really is. Well, the criticism was kind of jokey, but (laughs) I just, the more I thought about it, I found this so despicable. You've got this billionaire, this disconnected billionaire trying to extract more resources that trap heat. Again, Amazon is aggressively courting the fossil fuel industry. They have no plan to address climate change. They're pissing off their employees because they're not doing anything when other leading tech firms are are at least trying to act. And he turns around and says, space travel is our only way to survive as a species. I mean, I, I was completely blown away. Um, you know, imagine a world where billionaires like Bezos put a fraction of the time into saving this planet as they are trying to create new fantasy worlds. Well, the good news is that you have Senator Ted Cruz that says we definitely need a space force to protect us from space pirates. So somebody else is thinking about it. Oh, it's crazy. Did you see Elon's response to that? He like he like no. he tweeted out a pirate flag. <laughs> <laughs> that was great. <laughs> That's going to do it, folks. Raise your pirate flags high and tell people that you subscribe to this podcast. Send out the word around the earth and beam it out into space. Tell people where to find this podcast and uh, it'll help us out. We can be found on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, and anywhere else. And uh, when Jeff Bezos builds a spinning world in the sky and leaves earth behind to wither, hopefully we'll be there to living on. If you've got questions or comments, reach out to us on Twitter. 
with Catherine Hamilton and Jigger Shah. I'm Stephen Lacey. This is The Energy Gang, conversations on the future of energy from Green Tech Media. We'll catch you next time.